Hello, this is David Perlman for Conversations at the Whole Note, and I'm very pleased to be here finally with Peter Unchen. Well, it's very nice to be here, David. And on the road, our standard four questions are, first of all, what did we drag you away from for this interview? I have been rehearsing all day. Mm -hmm. uh, we started the morning with Tchaikovsky 6, mm -hmm. and we rehearsed that for a fairly long time. And then we did Rossini, La Scala di Setta. And then we had a lunch break, except that during the lunch break, the orchestra was being introduced to our new CEO, ah, which was Jeff very exciting. Melanson. Jeff Melanson, which was, it was very exciting, very charming, lovely, warm guy, full of imagination and ideas and very open. And it was, it was a really nice meeting. But then I had to leave because I had a rehearsal with Jean-Yves Thibaudet. Uh, on the James Macmillan Piano Concerto and the Shostakovich First Piano Concerto, which he's playing with Andrew McCandless, our principal trumpeter. And then uh, at 1.30, we started the rehearsal. No, we, we did the Rossini again because we wanted to just tie it up. And then we did Macmillan, break, Macmillan, Shostakovich. And that went on. So that was uh, about three, five and a half hours, six hours of rehearsal, something like that. Uh, and this being May 5th, 2012, just to put it... 2014. 2014, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So two years you're functioning in. I thought it look, should be the future two years. Um, that's for concerts... That's for concerts tomorrow night, uh -huh. uh, Thursday night. And then the Shostakovich is instead of the Macmillan at the weekend on Saturday night ah, okay. and Sunday afternoon up at the Western. Okay. So, so there we are. So that's what you so took me away from. took you away from, and then after you run out of here, you're heading off somewhere. To meet the German Consul General, who ah. would like to have a conversation with me about some connections. Ah, very So that's, that's the life of a, of a music director. There's yeah. always plenty of different things going on. Looking ahead to the summer, the next question is, what are you looking forward to most as an audience member over June, July, August? Oh, that's an interesting question, because people like me aren't very good at going to things. Mm -hmm. um, as an audience member, I probably will go, actually, there's a couple of things that come to mind. My son sings in a wonderful a cappella group on Martha's Vineyard called The Vineyard Sound. Okay. And the last two summers, we've gone to visit Martha's Vineyard, and they are 10, this year there'll be 11, very talented young kids, I mean, 20, 19, 22, whatever they are, and they put on a fantastic show, and they sing so beautifully, it's so in tune, and in so many different parts. Uh, that's always really entertaining, and I'm sure we'll go there. Uh, I will also be going to the Caramore Festival a little bit because it's right down the road and I have a former affiliation with Caramore. Right. Uh, and I might hear some string quartet music there. It's a beautiful location. Um, and I, I may also go to part of their jazz festival because uh, I love it. If I, you know, if I go for real entertainment, mm -hmm. um, then obviously orchestral music, I, I can't stop being curious about how they're doing it and why they're doing that right. and why they're doing, why not, not doing this. Bit of a busman's holiday. Yeah, a little bit, and if I hear a string quartet, that's in some ways a little bit too nostalgic for me, although I can certainly enjoy that very much. I love going to piano recitals or, um, or classical guitar recitals mm -hmm. or things like that. And I also love to hear jazz and other you know, different musical forms. But Petey's 
performance will be top of your list. Well, that's yeah, that's really enjoyable. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've known Petey for a while. Yeah, Canadian yeah. Children's Opera Company. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, he's not twelve anymore. No, he's not. <laughs> Great. And then the the follow up question to that is, uh, as a musician yourself, what are you looking forward to over the summer? Well, first of all, I'm looking forward to not being on the road for a while. But most importantly, uh, I'm very, very excited about the European tour that the Toronto Symphony is going to be taking uh, mm -hmm. middle of August for about 10 days. Right. It's the first um, European tour uh, in 14 years for the orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really a very, very significant moment for all of us. And we're going to be going to uh, Grafenegg, which is a beautiful festival close to Vienna. Uh, the Amsterdam Concertgebouw will be playing at the Rheingau, a wonderful German festival. Then we'll be in residence at the Helsinki Festival for a couple of days, in which we'll do not only a regular concert in the evening, but we'll do the next night one of our late night concerts, which they, they heard about and got excited about, because as, as many people know, we do once a year, we do this 10.30 p.m. start concert, and it's mm. very different atmosphere in Roy Thompson Hall. So Helsinki is going to take one of those, and then the final concert is sort of on our way home. We're going to stop in Iceland at Reykjavik, which has a beautiful concert hall called the Harpa, because every window is shaped like a harp, and it's mm. sitting right there on the Atlantic Ocean, a stunning place with a great sound. And if the volcanoes behave, you will then fly out of Iceland back to... That, that would be nice. Yes, I, I was actually once <laughs> almost stuck in Budapest. Oh, were you? With, well, that particular volcanic eruption was threatening all flights. And the only airport that was open in Europe at that moment was Rome. And so I left the stage in Budapest and got a car to drive me to Rome to get on a plane. It took about 10 hours overnight. Mm -hmm. I got to the airport, everything was fine, I got on the plane, the plane flew for an hour and a half and the captain came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry, we have a problem. And everybody on that plane looked and we thought, our engines are full of volcanic ash and this really is a problem, you know. Right. And we flew back all the way to Rome and, and a couple of hours later we took off and everything was fine. <laughs> but, so that's my volcano story. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so you're doing, obviously, uh, one of the things before you head off to Europe, you're doing dress rehearsal concert, we could call it, at Toronto Summer Music. Yes, wonderful. They're presenting us at Kerner. It's fantastic that we've got that affiliation and mm -hmm. it's a terrific festival. They have, they have great ideas and uh, also it's an opportunity for us as an orchestra to play in Kerner Hall, which frankly we haven't done. Oh, you haven't done. And how does it relate size-wise to some of the halls you're going to be playing in once you get over there? Well, you know, that's a good point because the, the Musikverein, the famous hall in Vienna, is, is hardly bigger than Kerner Hall. Uh -huh. You know, in North America we have these very large concert halls and there are very large concert halls now, the modern halls in Europe. And by modern I mean the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. But all of the traditional older halls are nowhere near as big. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Concertgebouw, for example, is somewhere between the size of Kerner Hall and the size of, of Roy Thompson Hall. So uh, almost uh, the size of the Four Seasons. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, something that doesn't feel like that. It feels just like a beautiful rectangular shoebox room. Yeah. But it has this fantastic sound and it has a very, very extraordinary entrance. So when the conductor and the soloists come in, they walk down probably 50, 60 steps on the red carpeting and then walk through the orchestra 
and all and, and to the podium and then they, so you walk way from backstage and there's audience um, on either side so of you. So you have a note on your dressing room door that says don't trip. Yeah well I, I mean line. I remember the first time I sat at a concert there Radu Lupu came down the stairs I thought god there's so many steps this is unbelievable <laughs> and then when I uh, the one of the first times I played there Anne Akiko Myers, wonderful violinist, mm -hmm. had the heels, the highest heels you could imagine, and this very tight blue dress. And I, I well, she had to go first, you know, and I, I watched her going down these steps in these heels at such a rate, you, I could hardly keep up with her. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, she's going to fall, she's going to fall. No, she was fine. Yeah. So the repertoire that you're taking to Europe, you're taking several programs. Is it going to adjust Couple programs, from yeah. country I mean, there's a, there's to country? There's two or? different soloists. Uh, Jörg Widmann is um, sort of the, the composer in residence at the Grafenegg Festival. And uh, oh. he's a good friend and a wonderful artist. A great clarinetist. Great composer, great clarinetist. And he's going to play one of his pieces and we'll also play the Weber Clarinet Concerto. Ah. Uh, so that's, that's one of the programs actually starts with the, uh, the Weber Oberon Overture and then has the Weber Clarinet Concerto uh, and then and his piece and then the Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other program is the Vaughan Williams Talus Fantasy, which are one of the great masterpieces mm -hmm. of, of all music, but certainly of English music. Uh, and then James Ennis. Uh, is going to play Tchaikovsky uh, and then we will do the symphonic dances in that program as well but in, in Helsinki we'll play Shostakovich 11 uh, which is the very very powerful extraordinary mm. symphony um, which is about Bloody Sunday and, and right. all the tragedy and the story around that You snuck in a rehearsal with Widman when he was here in Toronto last month. We you? and we're sneaking in a rehearsal of the symphonic dances this Saturday with the shots. You know, you you rehearse yeah. when you have when you're going on tour. You have to figure out mm. how to find the rehearsals because sometimes you can't get the orchestra together for very long before you leave. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a yeah, because Friedman was here to do a, a program of all his own music and yeah. new music concerts. That's right. That's right. Great program. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, he's such a warm. His music is. It's, it's fascinating because in some ways it, it, it can sound quite complex, mm -hmm. but actually the gestures are very, very traditional in many ways and very warm. And he, as a musician, is full of tenderness. And so when he plays all of this extraordinary stuff and quarter tones and bending sounds and mm -hmm. double harmonic things and a clarinet, you know, he's, he's always making music. So the, you know, the thing that people fear, I think, about new music mm -hmm. is that it's not going to say anything to them. And maybe there have been some examples of, of new music that it's, you know, quite difficult to access. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't deny that, you know, I don't, I don't blame people for having certain fear, but when it's played mm -hmm. with the kind of sincerity and passion conviction. and understanding conviction, you know, then you can find it on another level. It Absolutely. doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, oh yes, I get that harmony, oh yes, I love that tune, I'm going to whistle mm -hmm. it going home. Mm -hmm. it, can be, it can be discovered in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. There's an emotional through line to his work that is extraordinary. It's absolutely. lovely, lovely yeah. to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Last of the mandatory four questions is, what are you already embroiled in now, other side of the summer? What are you already working on for next in season. your spare time, well, for your next season or yeah. for some well, great hidden yeah. project you haven't told anybody else uh, about you're going to yeah. tell me about for the first time. Right, well, we have Scoop. an interesting... First of all, I'm doing Marla 8 again uh -huh. in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, and 
That is a great privilege for a con ask any conductor. How many times have you conducted Mahler eight? Mm -hmm. If they say they've done it ten times, they're probably not telling you the truth. You know, it's so unlikely that they would have they would have done because you just can't put it on. It's huge, uh, you know, capacity and three choirs and all this kind of stuff. But I'm very fortunate to be doing it for the second time in two years uh, in Scotland, and that's a mammoth piece and very important to grasp. Uh, the emotional language fully and the emotional journey fully before you embark on, mm. on the very first rehearsal which is in about two weeks so um, that's something very much on my mind and then um, I'm also learning the Thomas Addis violin concerto and this is probably the sixth or seventh um, rather complex contemporary concerto that I'm doing this season quite apart from any other contemporary piece I've done mm -hmm. um, so it's been quite a season I did the Brett Dean viola concerto in Berlin recently very very complicated piece and, and you know it takes many many hours to live with those scores and try to find the conviction in the piece and just be ready to lead the orchestra uh, in what to them can look like quite a mystery from all they have is one line so um, I've been working on the Addis, um, which, which I'm playing with uh, Augustin Haderlich, wonderful violinist, mm -hmm. uh, also in Scotland. And then on the other side, you know, the opening of, of next season, we have a, a lot of wonderful things, which everybody can read about. Yeah. Uh, but the bigger planning, you know, it's very interesting because the Toronto Summer Music Festival has started to emphasize just this summer exactly what's been on my mind for the last six months which is how fascinating it is, this sort of eruption of 20th century musical language. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, by the early, say, 20s, uh, in, in 1920s, you know, you, you could suddenly no longer have any idea when music might have been written, yeah. if you listen to it now. If it was Schoenberg in the beginning of serialism, well, you'd think, my God, that could have been written tomorrow. You know, it seems so modern to us. In fact, there's probably very little music that's, that's that strictly 12 tone that's being written even today. Um, at the same time, you had composers emerging. Well, you still had Rachmaninoff and Strauss writing in very sure. honest, romantic language uh, most of the time, and then other romantics developing, like Samuel Barber and so on. Yeah. And then you had the sort of polytonal but non-modernists like Shostakovich and, and Britain, and then you had the people who were so influenced by folk music, uh, the styles of Kodai and even the music of Bartok, which was sure. so fascinating on so many levels and had a kind of cosmic quality to it. And if you think about the 19th century, if you listen to a, a piece of music, you can say, yeah, that's probably, you know, that's early 19th century. Yeah. The only thing that would confuse you is late Beethoven. If you listen to the Grosser Fugue and you don't know what it is, yeah. you'd say, well, that must be a piece by Stravinsky. You know? yeah. so, except the gestures are obviously Beethoven, but the, sure. the, the harmonic language is far too sure. modern for, the, for that period. But yeah. it's, it's arguable that he couldn't, couldn't have written that music and, and, unless he'd been deaf. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the conviction inside his head was such that mm -hmm. he just had no fear to write this music, which was so incredibly dissonant for the time. But with the exception of that period in, in late right. Beethoven, the, the 20th century opens up a completely new world mm -hmm. to so many different styles. And it came from the, the imagination of, of many previous composers, including Beethoven, but certainly Mahler. Mm -hmm. Mahler was the first one to use all kinds of different styles of music in his serious symphonies. Right. Which Brahms didn't do that really. I mean, you know, yes, you'd get an occasional sort of Slavonic dance in Brahms, but you wouldn't get klezmer music or anything like that. Same right. with Bruckner, it was always spiritual, you know. So, I think it's a very interesting period, 
And I think it's one that we should get our audience everywhere in Toronto excited about. Mm -hmm. It's also a very fascinating period in art mm. uh, and in literature, actually. So uh, I, I feel that we, uh, as, as a group of, of you know, art, arts leaders in the city, we need to do a really good job of engaging people who live in Toronto in what is fascinating about the world of art. Mm -hmm. Because you know, we have to work harder at it now because they're so distracted. I mean, oh, which absolutely. of us doesn't sit with some kind of a gadget, you know, yeah. and just go from one YouTube video to the other, from one Google piece of information mm -hmm. to the other? You know, you, sometimes you learn a lot, and sometimes it's just purely mindless. Yeah. But the fact is you're distracted and you're entertained. So yeah. we need to work very hard at either being part of that, which right. is part of what we need to do, but also by just creating something that they, they've got to say, now, now that I actually have to see. That I have to stop and lift my eyes for. Right, because I'm not, I'm not, I won't be doing that alone either. I want to go and share that with other people. Mm -hmm. And this is the sad thing I think that's happening to society now is that people don't go to bookshops anymore mm -hmm. and talk to somebody who knows a lot about books and look at a lot of books and be around people who love books and, and sit and, and read a few pages and say, oh, it's interesting that well the the difference between the opposable thumb and the apposable thumb is is a, is a whole shift in the evolution of Absolutely. the human species that's very very true but what the one thing that we have to realize is that it, it, this device oriented society is a very lonely one yeah absolutely potentially you know and we we need to understand that it's it's got to be all about community yeah and this does not really bring us together Mm -hmm. We should we should use it more to bring ourselves together, yeah. rather than to pretend that we are together. That's my view. Right, by that one. <laughs> so we mustn't lose track of the fact that this is tenth anniversary as well. I mean, ten years. Uh, when I talked to you last, you were packing in. No, that was two times ago. I talked to you. You were packing to leave Connecticut. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That was the first one. And then you were in a car five years later in Northern Ontario with Roberta driving yes. while you talked. Of course. So here you are, 10 years on. Uh, you've two hats, conductor, music director. Um, at this point, a third of the members of the orchestra are younger than you, right? In terms oh, of I should think more of them are younger than me. Some no, I, I, don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean in <laughs> age, I mean in I, terms I of mean. Appoint, yes, appointment. Yes, absolutely. I think They've we've been with hired the over 30. We've yeah. hired over 30, and you're absolutely right, because uh, I think the, the membership is 90 or 91, something mm -hmm. like that. So it's just gone over a third, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, um, what would, so in terms of the sound of the orchestra, I mean, that's one way of asking it. Not, is the orchestra better than it was? But what would you say about the sound and the way it's evolved and changed over that time? You know, the, those are difficult questions to answer for several reasons. One, um, I don't want to sound like I'm going to say it's, uh, it's improved in this way and it's improved in that way. And, you know, mm. didn't I do a good job? Because, you know, it's for other people to say that or not say that. Um, well, and and, and the other thing, and the other thing is, you know, it's like when you're ten years old and you see your auntie and and she says, "Oh wow, you've grown!" And say, I don't, I didn't notice. I look at myself in the mirror every day, or I'm me every day. I don't notice the growth. Having said that, I I know what what we work on all the time, which is to create more spontaneity, more color, more magic. Uh, more immediacy to everything we do, more personality in our playing, um, to try to uh, absolutely avoid a kind of generic 
very good orchestral playing world. Mm-hmm. You know, when I came, this orchestra was extremely accomplished. There's no doubt about it. It was a very, very fine orchestra. Um, and but I think that there's a a culture uh, of of making music that that I share with all of them and they share with me. It's much more fun, you know. And even this morning, I started the rehearsal by saying, you know, it's another opportunity mm-hmm. to to make music. I mean. Look what we do. This is a job. Yeah. You know, it's hard work. It's difficult and it's tiring and you get physical problems and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. but what you're actually creating when you do to 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 say this is my work and I'm I'm playing Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. Yeah. Unbelievable. So what are we looking for? Uh, when we started the rehearsing, I uh, I told my story about Tchaikovsky Six. Everybody has a ch- story pretty much about Tchaikovsky Six. Mine was that I had a ticket to see David Oistrakh when I was 18 years old. I was about to make my debut in mm. London playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. And I was ready to be inspired by hearing the person who was really my favorite musician. Mm. Because I felt Oistrakh was not only a great, great violinist, but he, he spoke to you with such personality and, and he was an earnest, mm. serious, warm, but never gushing musician and uh, it was just amazing anyway so I'm ready to go to this concert and I read in the paper the day before the concert that he died in Amsterdam sure. so I go to the concert in the Royal Festival Hall and they play Tchaikovsky 6 uh, in his memory and it was Gennady Rostosvensky conducting and you know when a group of musicians who were anticipating the visit by one of the great legends mm-hmm. and one of the great souls of the musical world suddenly plays a piece they know and love in his memory. Mm-hmm. Very extraordinary things happen. Mm-hmm. And we should always play it like that. Yeah, because it's always somebody's first. Exactly. If you're lucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And somebody's always just died as yeah, well. This you is know, I mean, this is, you know, we, we, we live with death. That's part of being, being alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live with tragedy, so you know the the idea that um, that oh we have to play another Tchaikovsky six. You can sometimes feel that way yeah. when you wake up in the morning, but once it starts, once you get yourself into that mindset, it it is as what you said. It's the first time for somebody. Think yeah. about that person who's never heard it before. Uh, Oistrakh's Mendelssohn was the first one I ever heard on a recording. Fantastic. Well, that's the what most I grew up with. The incredible uh, example of Oistrakh is if one listens to the cadenza of the Shostakovich first mm. violin concerto, which is one of the most popular YouTube videos, right. and it is absolutely astounding. I mean, that, that uh, uh, among all the great violinists and all the great videos of violinists you see, I think that's probably the greatest example of, mm. the, the, of somebody expressing so many powerful emotions mm. uh, with such total conviction uh, it's astounding mm. I was talking the, uh, a few weeks back with uh, lucky enough to, to sit with uh, Clemens Helsberg from the Vienna Phil who was in town when for a symposium actually mm. and uh, sitting with Bruce Surtees, who's one of our, our writers, and, and uh, they were musing. There's like, I could sit back and watch the, the two of them talking about recordings, and they were musing on how there used to be a time when you'd turn on the radio and, and you'd hear the orchestra and it had its sound. You'd say, yes, that's 
the Cleveland or that's this orchestra or that orchestra because there was a kind of fingerprints, a sonic fingerprint and mm. that these days it's harder for an orchestra to well, achieve that kind of thing. There's far more great orchestras. Far more great great orchestras. Yeah. Is there more homogeneity well, in the playing? It's interesting you it said because we used to say that, you know, about 20 years ago we already started saying, you know, now you listen to a violinist on the, and you, you, know, you used to know, oh, that's Sigetti, that's Milstein, that's Heifetz, yeah. that's Isaac, yeah. you know, that's Oistrach. Yeah. And then it came to the point where maybe there were so many great violinists that came out of the same school, mm-hmm. although several of the ones I mentioned came out of a similar school, but, um, but I mean, you know, the, the communication in a way ruins individuality because you, oh, look, listen to that, mm-hmm. oh, I could imitate that. I mean, I grew up listening to Oistrakh, but I also grew up listening to Itzhak and Pinky. Yeah, right. And, you know, you listen to those guys' sound and you think, Hmm, I wouldn't mind making it sound like that. So the next thing you do is you go in there and you start, you know, and, you and you're, you're making your own. Yeah, you know, and you want to sound like Pinky. I remember sitting down playing the Vorjak Terzetta with Pinky once, and it was like a, a you know, a vibrato fest. Right. Like, wow, he played, he played a phrase with that vibrato, and I'm, like, ah, I'm going to do it just as well, you know. So there's a little bit of that imitation that inevitably happens because of, of the fact of recordings, actually. Mm. So when the recording started, they were, they were picking up. Uh, a kind of culture that had gone on independently of everybody else's culture so they were able to have their own style but I still think among orchestras you know you can hear there's a certain kind of luxury to the sound of the Boston Symphony and maybe a certain kind of intimacy and perfection to the sound of the Cleveland Orchestra Mm. Um, New York Philharmonic very robust you know Vienna uh, so fine so tender Berlin just can do anything (laughs) to hear so beautiful these days, the yeah. sound of the winds. Well, absolutely, your symphony is lovely. These but then days. you know, then then you then you listen to the Minnesota Orchestra, mm-hmm. or the Cincinnati Symphony, or the Toronto Symphony, yeah. and and you go, well, well, wait a minute, this right. is actually, is it really? I mean, how many people could tell the difference? Really, is this to say, well, oh, that's really not as good? It's yeah. pretty. I mean, and I just named three orchestras that, uh, St. Louis Symphony. O- obviously, there are many orchestras I could mention that just play so beautifully. And it's something Maniac said to me at the beginning of his career. You know, there were those ten orchestras that you longed to be invited by because they played so wonderfully. Mm. And that number, he says, he thinks it's grown to you know around the world, it's like forty, fifty, wow. absolutely first-rate orchestras. So. Um, Maybe we're lucky to live in this world. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a bit about uh, the way orchestras configure themselves. At the hall, it was interesting because uh, the LA Phil was in, and their seating arrangement was quite different. Then when um, Bereko was here with the TSO, he had the first violins and the second sitting across the stage. I notice you usually choose. First, seconds, violas, violas, cellos, yeah, yeah. As a, but not always. Not always, yeah, but yeah. but more often than not, yes, unless yes. the piece has some kind of particular yeah, antiphonal quality. Antiphonal yeah, well, more and more we'll too. play, you know, Mozart and uh, and Beethoven. You know, we we can do. It, it does depend on the hall somewhat. Mm-hmm. Depending on how the music is written, uh, if you can hear very well across the stage of a hall, then having the antiphonal effect of the first and seconds is great. But when the orchestra sat like that, it was a much smaller orchestra. 
right. and it was playing in a much more intimate space and frankly they didn't have microphones on them going oh you know you're not together or the, and <laughs> right. it was an intimate space and more resonant and you know we didn't look for perfection in those days mm. so much so once we got into recording people started to notice it was Stokowski always who said that you know but well, it's not together and they don't sound you know in octaves they don't sound so rich, you know, put them together, they sound great in recording. So it was that, and you know, only in the 30s really that orchestra started to sit first and seconds. Now, Boreco did something interesting because he had firsts, violas, yes. cellos, seconds. Now, I don't like personally splitting the violas and the seconds because they, they're, in most music, they're very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I love the sound. I mean, check six, we're doing firsts, cellos, basses, uh, violas, seconds, because mm-hmm. the piece is so much written like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I choose a little bit. I think it's also very good for the orchestra to, to move around a bit. It's very good for the, they hear different players. Uh, it unifies them in a different way. It makes it fresh and they're very cooperative with it. If they complain, it's only backstage. They don't do it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so conductors had, music directors had is the other, is the other thing. In, in terms of the programming, I mean, I think of new creations as one of the, it's one of the things that you latched onto really early as a yep. as a mission or for sure I don't know if I want to call it that but well, I, nothing wrong with that I mean yeah. it, it's it's like let's let's really celebrate what is what is fresh what is new mm-hmm. let's give people an opportunity to come to concerts and just hear completely new things yeah. in, almost entirely anyway, yeah. and then at the other side of it Mozart at 251, 23 let's celebrate that which is always an anniversary you know, yeah it, it was you know, a, frankly it was a snowbird yeah. issue yeah. You know, everyone said to me when I first arrived, oh, January is impossible, it's such a slow month, everyone yeah. just had Christmas, and I said, well, Mozart's birthday's in January, why don't yeah. we just do a Mozart festival? I mean, lovely for the orchestra, yeah. anyway, and uh, it's a great way to sort of cleanse oneself at the beginning of the year, and uh, so I didn't necessarily intend for these festivals to go on and on, but, mm. but they caught on, and they do, and I think celebrating things is important. Mm-hmm. And so we've done other celebrations of things that I think are interesting. For example, the Bartok Strauss Festival. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting because they're virtually contemporaries. That you would never believe yeah, it. You wouldn't. You listen to their music, uh, but if you listen to Bartok's first tone poem, Kosuth, it sounds like Azor Sprach Zarathustra. And so, and then Bartok, in his style, evolved very differently from Strauss, obviously. So that was a very interesting festival, and we did Rachmaninoff and the Impressionists again contemporaneous creations and but very different styles of writing and to, so I, I think giving people and as what I was talking about earlier I think giving people something to talk about and think about say I want to go to the Toronto Symphony because I'm going to I'm going to witness something specific mm-hmm. yes okay I love to go and hear Tchaikovsky 6 great I love to go near Beethoven 9 or any Beethoven symphony or whatever it is but we really want people to trust us with the programming say I'm just going to go to the Toronto Symphony right I want to hear what they're doing today it doesn't matter what they play they mm-hmm. It'll be fine, it'll be spontaneous, it'll be exciting, and, you know, and hopefully I'll be able to get into the parking lot. <laughs> the parking lot, yes, indeed, and stay for the ovation. So, so quickly on to the, I mean, I, I, have to, I have to ask in terms of, you know, the other, the other topics, and maybe Jeff um, Melanson will be the interview that I'll have, but in terms of programming, does... Does the, does the financial situation with the orchestra create a sense of, I'd call it, if it was transit, I'd say a fair box mentality where, where one starts to worry about preserving some of this programming because the enthusiasm at a new creations festival 
the new audience isn't reflected in the dollars and cents if you've got to make your programming pay at the at right. the box office all the time. The balanced budgets sure. implications well, actually, of the situation that you're facing. Jeff said something very interesting, which was that you know there was kind of an anomaly during the 70s and 80s or 60s, 70s, 80s that in Canada we had an unbelievably wealthy Canada Council that was just doling out money for the arts. It was fantastic, yeah. but it didn't. It's not really the norm. I mean. You know, music has always depended on some form of philanthropy, mm -hmm. and uh, you know whether it was the church originally, or then royalty. Uh, you know, look at all of the individuals that sponsored the composers like Haydn and and uh, the Esterhazys and all these families like sure. Beethoven, all the Schubert, well Schubert less so, but yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know, so and then it did sort of become government. And now it's a combination of private sector foundations and commerce. You know, so now it's all about city building. And we're very aware of you know, the, the whole issue of creativity is hugely important. Now, Toronto is a city that has a reputation for many, many things. But its reputation as a cultural center is nowhere near as strong as it deserves to be. And, and I think we are all responsible for finding a way to get that message out. And, and I think that there's, obviously this is a city with huge resources, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I, I, I would say that if you measured economy with the quality of art, then, then Toronto should have um, in the top 10 cities of the world, right? That, because it must be in the top 10 economies by now of, of the world, of individual cities. So we have an opportunity without question. And yes, we have to find a different way of branding ourselves, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a different approach towards marketing as we evolve and see what the landscape is. The landscape is it's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And yes, fortunately, I can say that Jeff is intent on programming things that are great and things that are interesting, mm -hmm. rather than things that he thinks people will buy, simply buy tickets to. Mm -hmm. We have to find a way to be fascinating no matter what we're doing. So that's the goal for the future. Danger and opportunity. There you are. Lovely, thank you. Very welcome. Just thank wonderful you. to talk to you. Yeah, again. you too.